You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Mino Line Media presents the Olivia Fox Podcast. Welcome to the Olivia Fox Podcast. We appreciate you all so much for tuning in each and every week. Remember, we have brand new episodes every Thursday. You can find us on TuneIn, Google, Apple, iHeart, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you get your favorite podcast, you can find the Olivia Fox Podcast. Well, today, ladies and gentlemen, we have an incredible, phenomenal, there's just so many accolades for this guest. And I'll, I'll keep it, keep honest, we had originally had him scheduled a couple weeks ago, but he uh, ended up having something come up at the last minute. So I was like keeping my fingers crossed that we'd be able to get you back on the schedule. And so I thank you so much for that. Welcome to the Olivia Fox podcast, Dr. Hassan Teta. You have so many accolades, uh, you know, in the U.S. Navy, a a surgeon, a, a public speaker, a keynote speaker, a motivator. Thank you so much for, for joining us on the Olivia Fox podcast. How are you? Good. I am doing well. Thank you for the kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. I have done my research and I um, one thing that I checked out on YouTube because I found it very interesting. Um, one, when I was told about you by mutual friends, I was very excited to get you on the show. One, because I am a kidney transplant recipient and I know how important firsthand organ donation is. And then when I found out that you were this incredible heart surgeon, thoracic surgeon, and watching the video a day in the life and seeing everything that you do with your your career your personal life and the messages that you spread to those who who need to hear um, your message I, I'm just so uh, pleased that you're here um, one thing that I did want to hit upon as we begin and get into this uh, incredible uh, interview is your near-death experience when I watched um, a couple of interviews on you um, you shared with us about a near-death experience you had when you were an undergrad. Uh, would you like to, you know, kind of share a little bit about that and how that impacted your choices as to where you are now? Yes, that's a good question. A very good segue, I think, that gives them insight into much of what has, I think, guided and, and probably directed uh, my career. Uh, so as you mentioned, I was an undergrad. I was actually a junior. I was uh, fortunate to be invited to interview for medical school. I was a pre-med major in undergrad biochemistry, and uh, I had the fortune of being interviewed or granted an interview at uh, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. I was uh, in upstate New York at the time, and I flew down to Baltimore, and on the way to the uh, city of Baltimore uh, on the aircraft, I was sitting next to a uh, a, a woman who was, had a very productive cough is how I, would, <laughs> I would, how would describe it. You know, this was well before the pandemic. So before, you know, those days, you know, people coughing and sneezing, no one paid too much attention to it. You just kind of kept going, right? Well, she sat uh, next to me throughout the whole uh, flight. She was very pleasant, nice woman. We, we had a bit of a conversation. Um, I, I, I recall that being very important though, because uh, after going down to Baltimore, interviewing, and then subsequently coming back uh, to uh, campus, 
uh, I would say about uh, four to five days later, just about a week later, I had uh, developed a fever and, and uh, you know, somewhat of a flu-like symptoms. Uh, and I was definitely ill, you know, very sick. More, more than I'd ever experienced before. And I had this uh, very unforgettable headache and uh, stiff neck. <laughs> and, you know, saying all these things now, if, if you knowing what I know now, it'd be like, oh my gosh, this is really serious. But I thought, you know, as an undergrad, you know, student, I just went to the college infirmary, was seen by some folks there who thought that I had a uh, stomach flu. They gave me some, some medicine, which turned out to be probably, you know, a bit life-saving in retrospect. They gave me penicillin for the stomach flu and told me to go back to my dorm room. I was a uh, an RA, so I had a had a single. I was by myself, and I was also in a fraternity, still in the fraternity Phi Beta Sigma. And we had a very big weekend planned, and uh, I had all of these activities and responsibilities, and I was out of commission, Olivia. I was in the bed, keeled mm. over, throwing up, headache getting worse, fever getting worse, and this was the days before cell phones, and and. <laughs> And so my phone was ringing off the hook. I couldn't even I couldn't even get muster the strength to, to pick it up. So you know, fast forward and many hours later, my fraternity brothers, thinking that I had sort of tried to ditch work <laughs> and responsibilities, came looking for me. And and it was a good thing that they did, you know, because I didn't have a roommate. Uh, it was very possible I would have uh, I would not have the opportunity to be here speaking with you. And uh, they they kind of broke into my room, so to speak. One of my uh, one of my frat brothers had my combination came into the room. And I remember because we, we muse about it now many years later. And he, I remember when he walked in with one of my other frat brothers, he said, he said, son, it smells like death in here. Wow. What's going on? <laughs> And I, and I, I was out of it, Olivia. And they, 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 you know, rightfully and and very astutely said something's not right. You know, let's take him to the hospital. They, they literally carried me wow. out of the out of the dorm room, uh, kind of ushered me into a vehicle, and, and fortunately there was a hospital nearby, not too far off campus, and drove me in. And um, and again, a testament to the good uh, fortune that I had of of having some astute clinicians and and good people at the hospital because. You can imagine the scene. It's a Friday night. There's a kid coming in, you know, two two other brothers carrying him in and he's like kind of uptunded and kind of out of it, you know, college town. You think, you know, he must have done something like he drank or something. And, you know, that was not that was not my practice back then. And and so when I came in, uh, you know, my my frat brothers were very insistent. They said something is wrong with him. You know, he's he's, he's not he's, he's not well. And they did some tests. And, and I kind of remember bits and pieces of it. But it turns out that at one point, uh, I was sort of in a fetal position. Someone said, well, we're going to stick a needle in your back. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And they were trying to keep me aroused and, and being very aggressive at that. And that was well appropriate in retrospect. So it turns out uh, when I did kind of recall uh, another moment, I was looking up at these bright lights and I thought I was I had I had, <laughs> I had seen the moment. You know, my right. moment had come. My, <laughs> I had gone beyond the pearly gates. And I just remember seeing this bright light and then, you know, sort of on the periphery, these, these masked individuals came and um, came into view and focus and, and said, uh, son, you, you have a really bad infection um, and uh, you're, you're, you're here in the hospital and um, you're very sick and we're going to give you some, some treatment for that. And I proceeded to spend, uh, you know, probably the next two weeks wow. in the hospital, a tube in every orifice. And I was diagnosed with bacterial meningitis. Mm. And for those in your audience that know anything about that or, or read about it, it, it is, you know, unfortunately, one of the diseases that does impact and afflict the uh, young adolescents, uh, typically college uh, students and, and, you know, even infants, and can be 
lethal if it's not uh, treated and addressed aggressively and, and diagnosed. And in my case, fortunately, all those things sort of happen. Uh, so by the grace of God, I am here with you yes. talking. And uh, my near-death experience, I will say, has definitely informed much of my life. I, I remember sort of emerging from that uh, ordeal, um, you know, in a very different and, and sort of impacted way, positively impacted, obviously, because I'm very grateful I was, I was, I was alive. And uh, there were moments that I remember in the hospital, certainly where my mom had, had come up to, and to, to be at my bedside and, and you know, my friends and, and, and visitors that came to see me, although I was in isolation, so they couldn't, they couldn't right. come, you know, into the room. So, yeah, I, I knew about quarantine well before quarantine right. came involved because <laughs> I, was, I was sort of in quarantine, so to speak. Uh, but I remember this moment, and this was really important because the physician that took care of me in the uh, emergency room, and, and it's, it's it, you know, even to this day, I recall how pivotal that was and how, how touching it was, but also how important it was for me in my career. He had learned from my fraternity brothers that I was, in fact, you know, not only a college student, but I was actually, you know, studying to become a physician and that I had just returned from interviewing in medical school. And and I'll tell you, Olivia, that is what I think kept me alive because I had this purpose and this sort of dream to become a doctor. And even in my moment of, of, of near death and being in the bed and, and, you know, almost succumbing to this, uh, you know, this illness and this you know, very lethal infection, I was thinking to myself, well, I can't die because I got I to gotta become a doctor. So I, I got something to live for. So right. I got <laughs> to keep going. And so this physician came to visit me, you know, uh, probably just a couple of days before I actually got discharged. So I was much better and recovering. I was still very weak and, and out of it. But I remember him coming up to the uh, the the room to see me. And if you can think about it, I mean, if you've ever been in a hospital and, 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 and given what you, you've shared with me, I'm sure you've had this experience of coming to the ER or being on the ward or being in the ICU. You know, you don't necessarily see the same doctors, especially when you're in the ER. It's very rare that you see the ER doctor on the floor. I mean, you see them in the ER, they triage you and then, then they're done. But this particular ER doctor sought me out, came up to visit me and he had in his hand this big textbook. And uh, it was Harrison's textbook of medicine and it's the bible for internal medicine and he said hey um you know my friend your friends told me that you wanted to be a doctor i just wanted to share with you what you had and and he had the book and he he sort of uh, turned to the chapter on bacterial meningitis and he said I, I want you to you know learn about what it is that you have you know since this is what you're going to be doing and uh and then he said you know since you want to be a doctor i have a little bit of a test for you and i said oh okay what's what's this all about <laughs> he said if you pass this test uh, we'll, we'll see what kind of doctor you're going to be i said oh great okay he goes all right here's the test and so i was very nervous and i'm thinking anticipating he goes what's two plus two <laughs> And I said, uh, I said, four. I thought it was a trick question. He said, great, you're going to be an excellent doctor. So, Olivia, just think about that. This is decades ago. I mean, literally decades ago. And I remember it like yesterday. And I'm here to share this story with you with this enthusiasm. But think about the impact that that physician made on my life, you know. It, it turns out, uh, <laughs> here's, the, here's the end of this, the, this story with, with, with the twist. It turns out I, I ultimately, by the time I got out of the hospital, it was just the time to learn that Hopkins had rejected me from medical oh, no. school. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to spend the next year, you know, my senior year, because this was an early decision um, track, but then my next year, you know, applying the traditional way. And ultimately, I did get accepted. And I went to med school in New York and had a wonderful experience there and, and great training. But uh, it turns out, so ultimately, I didn't get accepted. But I will tell you that 
the fact that the doctor told me I was going to be a good doctor, you know, and that I had survived this and that I had this sort of passion and this desire, like many people that pursue a dream or, 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 or sort of this, you know, great goal in life. I was like, I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to give up. And, and, you know, a doctor told me that I'm going to be a good doctor. So, I, you know, obviously it's going to, it's going to happen. It's going to come to fruition. So, uh, it was, it was a wonderful experience, but here, here are the, here are the nuggets and the pearls from that. A whole near-death experience. Not only did it teach me that one needs to value and appreciate every moment of life because you never know when it could be taken from you, especially when you're young and invincible as, as I thought I was back then. That was one thing. The second thing was, uh, you know, never give up on your dreams and your goals and your purpose can actually drive much of uh, what it is that you do in your life. And, and that certainly was the case for me. It, it kept me alive, I'm sure kept me driven, kept me focused, and kept me uh, sort of thinking about getting better and getting out of bed and getting out of the hospital to like, we'll pursue my dreams. And then sort of over the arch of time, that that moment, that um, that care that was uh, rendered to me, the, the touching um, moment for the physician to come back up and, and check on me, but also be empathetic and, and give me uh, a bit of encouragement was something that I wanted to embody when I became a physician. And, and it definitely has impacted my, I think, my interactions and my engagements, not only my colleagues, but my patients, and made me want to be that kind of doctor, you know, that, that made a difference in somebody's life. You know, many years, many years later, I'm still here talking about the guy, and uh, he probably doesn't remember who I am, <laughs> but I will always remember who he is. And, and because I had this experience, I had this ordeal, I had these, these people take care of me uh, and get me through all of that, I never ever once and never do underestimate the impact that, you know, I have and the potential I have to, to make a difference in a person's life uh, positively when you engage with them and as a physician and have this honor to take care of people because it makes a big difference. I know it certainly did in my life. So the long way to answer your near-death experience question, but you can see it Absolutely. had quite an impact on my life. You know, and, and yeah. th the thing um, that I have learned living the life that I've led is that you never know the type of impact words can have. I know words are powerful within yourself. Um, if you can believe it and see it, you can do it if you have that dream. But when something like that happens and impacts your life so many decades later, it's, it's just to me, it's just amazing that you were able to have that experience. And then not only that, but to take that experience and share your testimony with others to maybe enlighten them and encourage them to do the same. So I commend you on that. That is so um, such an amazing story um, to to have been that close to death, because uh, I do know how serious that is. Did you know the purpose of what you wanted to do specifically in medicine, or did you just know, I want to be a doctor? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the answer, the short answer is not necessarily. I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I mean, that alone, being the son of immigrant parents was, you know, that's like, <laughs> it was like the holy grail. It was like the mountaintop for me just to you know, be a doctor and then getting into medical school and realizing, oh my gosh, you know, this great profession of, of healthcare and medicine in particular, you, you could be so many different things. And I had no exposure to all of these different disciplines and specialties until I got in and, and, and sort of uh, embraced the community. But more importantly, I were, uh, was exposed to mentors and people that uh, gave me insight into their careers and gave me um, what I, I believe was was insight into what it is that they did. And, and one, one, uh, one moment in particular 
came when I was a second year medical student. Most of the African-American students in, in, in my class and my cohort were encouraged to go into primary care because they said, well, you know, we need primary care physicians in the community. And, and, and so I said, all right, well, you know, I, I, I knew a primary care doctor. And when I grew up, I said that that would be a nice, a nice thing to do. But uh, in my second year of medical school, in fact, I just, I just uh, shared this story on another podcast, actually. Uh, and I still keep in touch with this individual. Uh, he came to speak to the students and he came to speak in the capacity of uh, of a physician sort of giving us some perspectives on, on the career of, of healthcare, not in necessarily in his specialty, but he was introduced as a surgeon and he, he was African-American, he looked like me. And I said to myself, wow, I've right. never seen one of those. <laughs> so uh, I said, uh, after the, the presentation he gave, I went to him and I asked him, I said, oh, sir, you know, uh, I'm a second year medical student. I've been interested in, in maybe primary care. Uh, I'd like to learn a little bit more about what you did. And Olivia, he took time again, you know, like you said, words, encouragement, these sort of moments in life when you kind of connect with somebody, you never know how it's going to impact your life in such a way. And, and this was, again, one of those moments. So he said to me, he said, well, yeah, I am a surgeon. He said, well, why don't you come watch what I do? I was like, wow, really? I mean, that is there. Is that, right. even, that even possible? I, I said, absolutely. So he made the arrangements and I met him at his uh, hospital and he happened to practice at the time in, in uh, New York City and I was going to school in Brooklyn. So took the subway there early in the morning and, uh, you know, he, he met me in the hospital in the lobby. I made rounds with him. He got me into scrubs, went into the operating room, parked me behind the anesthesia curtain wow. and I watched what he did. And he opened up the patient's oh. chest and he stopped the heart and he fixed the heart and the heart started beating again. And I said to myself, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. I want to do that when I grow up. <laughs> and, yeah. And he, he was, he was, uh, he was a great mentor, still is. Um, and he took me under his wing. He gave me perspective, gave me counsel, gave me advice, wrote recommendation letters for me and just gave me some guidance in my early uh, career. And, and that became another one of these moments where, you know, yes, I had an idea to answer your question of what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people. I wanted to become a doctor. I wanted to, you know, serve in this in this health profession. But then I was exposed to something that was so cool and so magical and almost like a miracle, you know, to see this this work in action and to see someone so gifted do this work. Um, it engendered in me this desire to say, that's what I want to do. And, and as I learned how hard it was and how complicated it was and, and how difficult the journey would be, it was good to have him be there as a resource to tell me and, and guide me and, and, and sort of uh, give me insight into, you know, what I needed to do to become successful. So that was that was pivotal. And obviously, I had much, um, much fortune and great luck to, to run into a lot of individuals that not only were, you know, just as kind as he was with their time and counsel and advice and mentorship, but you know, were there to be uh, support as well. They were outside of medicine because it, right. it was a hard journey. You know, it took a it took quite a bit of quite a bit of work to get here. But the the reward has been um, has been has been great, and uh, and and it has been a a very I would have to say uh, you know life changing uh, <laughs> life changing and life uh, life fulfilling oh, journey. Absolutely. I mean, the thought of sitting and watching someone yeah. open a chest and actually hold a heart, yeah. stop it and then put it. I mean, that yeah. <laughs> was your mind blown? I mean, I just really, I mean. 
my mind my mind was blown it still is blown even when even now many years later after you know many many of those kinds of procedures and and you know if i ever have an opportunity which i have had on numerous occasions to share you know my work with others i've, I've tried to do that because i remember how much of an impact it made on and made for me and some of the hospitals i work at they have actual programs where they, they have a very structured sort of uh curriculum where they can bring people in they have an observation you know, sort of room where you can see surgery firsthand and we can come and explain the things that we're doing. And I could see the, the, the sort of the, 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 the eyes light up and, and sort of these questions and this wonder sort of kind of stirring in people's minds as they start thinking about the possibilities and, and what it is that they may want to do someday. So I know that these experiences and these exposures that you can get to, to certain things can make a big difference in one's life, uh, you know, at, at any stage of life, actually. So uh, definitely when you're impressionable and young and you're still sort of finding your way, it's good to have these kinds of experiences. So if I have an opportunity to, to share that are with you, people, I try to do that because I know how much of a difference it made on Are you able to see greatness in young people? that are pursuing what you've done with your life? I mean, is it something that you have an eye for, where you have an eye for talent when it comes to medicine? That's a good question. I think, you know, I think there's greatness in everyone. It's a matter of having the patience and having the sensitivity and, and, you know, quite frankly, the emotional intelligence to sort of appreciate what that one's individual greatness is. You know, you may not have it come out right away on the first encounter and you may incorrectly sometimes pass judgment on people and say, oh, you know, this person doesn't seem very, you know, sophisticated, smart, intelligent, whatever it is, you know, you named the adjective and, it, and you can, and you can falsely sometimes uh, think that someone is, is brilliant when in fact they, mm-hmm. there may not be a lot of depth there. So I think what's important and the onus on, on all of us as, as human beings, as individuals is to, is to have the capacity, I think is a good word, have the capacity uh, to want to learn about an individual and appreciate who that person is. And, and that may take some time. But I think if you do that, you start to discover and find that there's, you know, individual brilliance in everyone. It just depends on how that comes out and how you appreciate it. And then that comes out through just, you know, being empathetic and listening at, at times and, and also uh, just being receptive to what it is that person has to say. But in the sort of confines of the academic world when we have medical students and we have the, you know, the doctor and we have this relationship of, of imparting knowledge to, to students, it never ceases to amaze me how talented and how intelligent and, and really how hungry some of the students are for knowledge. And many of my colleagues have, have, have said <laughs> in my generation that if, if, uh, if they were trying to get into medical school, you know, when I was wow. trying to get in, they would never got in. You know, I, I say the same thing now. When I think about some of the kids that are coming through, I said okay, kids, I shouldn't call them kids, but young adults that are that are seeking these professions. I mean, you look at their grades, you look at their extracurricular activities of doing all these things, you're like, oh my gosh, these people are like superhuman. There's no way we would have had enough time to do all these things when, when I was their age. So yeah, they're, they're, they're very impressive individuals. And obviously they have a lot more tools and something Things are easier. Obviously, right. have Google. We had to walk through the. <laughs> do we? Do we? What is it? The Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> right. The Dewey Decimal System. Yeah, I, I shared that at the right. talk one time. They looked at me like I was crazy. 
video. Like, what is that? (laughs) Well, that's how we had to find a book, you know, believe it or not. We didn't have this thing called Google. But nonetheless, Olivia, I think I think it's uh, it's it's just a generational thing. I think all generations and, and in every profession, people have mused about how how much more sophisticated and advanced things are, and and how much more you have to know about any topic these days as opposed to in the in the past. Uh, fortunately, we have a lot more tools and resources at our disposal, and, and and I think the young people that are entering these professions, whether it be medicine, finance, uh, computer science, etc., they they have um, they have a lot at their uh, at their disposal, and I think uh, I think uh, the future is bright, at least for many of the people that I've run into. Now, you of course, heart surgeon, um, holding a human heartbeat in your hand. I'm I'm just. You know, that just to think about that, you know, it's just I watch a lot of medical. I'm kind of a I'm kind of like a super fan of yours. I'm telling you, I'm trying to be cool. But just the fact. (laughs) Pull it together, Olivia. Okay, bring it back. Okay, so (laughs) my question to you is, I guess, being um, a heart thoracic surgeon. And I know that you were in the Navy. So you obviously uh, worked as a, a, a surgeon, trauma surgeon in combat. Now, would you say that that prepared you to be where you are now and on part of your path? What was your experience with that? Um, I have a very good friend who is an anesthesiologist, but he also went the Navy route and just like you was uh, combat mm-hmm. was into into that. So tell me what how that played in your life in terms of your pathway and your journey? Another really good question. In every way, it has uh, played a role. I joined the Navy after I, after I graduated medical school, which is a bit non-traditional for most medical people. A lot of people come in uh, and then have the medical school, you know, either paid for or they go through the military medical school, you know, curriculum and then go through training afterward in the military. But I came in after I graduated med school and then I did my residency and my fellowship. And uh, my very first duty assignment was on the was on an aircraft carrier. And I was a ship surgeon. This is before I, I did my training in thoracic surgery. So I was a general surgeon on an aircraft carrier. I spent two years on the on the ship. And I remember when they gave me the assignment, I told my specialty leader, my supervisor at the time, I said, well, we're, I appreciate the assignment, sir, but with all due respect, I right. didn't join the Navy to go on a ship. <laughs> <laughs> and nonetheless, I found myself on this uh, on this on this uh, aircraft carrier, the ship. Four point five mm. acres of sovereign use as territory, projecting power around the world, and and I went around the world on a all around the world cruise and, and spent some time in the Persian Gulf supporting you know our operations there. And as ship surgeon, I was the only surgeon on board this uh, this vessel with six thousand sailors, and it was it was quite an experience, especially coming right out of training. Uh, but it was very formative for me. So you know the the the, the short answer to your question is every experience in the military, whether that was deployed on an aircraft carrier, deployed in in, uh, in combat operations in Afghanistan and desert, uh, special ops assignments in, in various parts of the country, doing administrative work in the Navy Medicine headquarters or in the Pentagon in my last job. They've all been formative and they've all 
been contributory to my practice of medicine, sort of my worldview on things, and also uh, my perspective on individuals and healthcare in general. You know, the military has uh, always had, and I and I, I like to share this with my civilian colleagues, has always been sort of the vanguard of a lot of advances. And a lot of people don't know that. It is one of the consequences, you know, I, I wouldn't call it a benefit necessarily, but just one of the one of the things that happens when we are forced in many occasions, as we have been in all of our different campaigns, uh, to adapt to help individuals that are critically wounded and ill. It was actually the Continental Congress, the Continental Army in, in, in Washington's era, you know, General Washington's era, that came up with this uh, concept of, of mass inoculation and vaccines. You know, that, that was where it started for smallpox. They they had this procedure where they would take people that were impe- infected with smallpox and, and do something called varicelization, which is taking some of the pustule and then you know, actually inoculating someone with it so that they would develop an immunity to a small amount and a small exposure. That turned out to be a very critical practice for us because uh, the British uh, were succumbing more so to disease than they were to, to the actual bullets. You know, it's 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 always been said in, in, in many different historical references that bacteria kills more people in, wow. in combat than, than bullets <laughs> because of infection and, and things like that. So that was one advantage. That, that was propagated from the military. The other thing was blood banking. You know, we think about uh, all of the, the advances we've had in trauma, doing surgery. Blood banking was, was something that was pioneered in the Army. And uh, that made that, that technology possible, you know, with, with the work that they did in that, in, that, um, in, that, in that scope and sphere of trying to save lives. And in our last couple campaigns with Afghanistan and Iraq, we, we fundamentally changed the paradigm of how we address trauma. You know, we used to do things differently in, in a different sequence. Now we address stopping the bleeding first and we realize that that's the most important thing. We had, unfortunately, many years of war, as you know, the past two decades or so, um, with a lot of people that were injured. And the injuries that they sustained would not have been survivable probably years ago, but because of the advances that we've made, We've been able to save a lot of lives. Uh, and that knowledge, that information, that sort of technical transfer of information and, and care has been, you know, given over to the civilian side. And that's helped uh, help advance some of the trauma care that we, we do right now. So the military fundamentally has has always had a big role in advancing healthcare in general. And for me, I've taken the, the practical experiences that I've had, I've applied them to my my civilian practice. And it's given me a, a perspective that I think has been unmatched. And I think many of my colleagues that have served in the military, particularly in the medical capacity, will always say that serving in the military has helped their their practice in the civilian world and has always helped them to be better doctors because of just the things that we were exposed to that you just would not have had an exposure or an experience if you had just uh, had an entire civilian career. I'm just thinking about everything that you're saying and absorbed it. When you interview someone, you're not supposed to get into the, and you're supposed to keep it moving, but I'm listening so hard to what you're saying just kind of blew my blew myself out the water. But you were talking about innovations and, and um, creating new procedures. And I know you've worked with uh, the Pentagon and Department of Defense with AI, with artificial intelligence. What role do you see AI playing? Because a lot is, you know, many people fear, you know, fear technology. 
technology, they fear advancement because maybe they don't understand it. What do you think is going to be the role of AI in the future of medicine? That's a uh, good question as well. I, the answer to that, I think, is a bit complicated. I, I, the The short answer is I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> I think uh, I think it's an evolving technology. It's one that has a lot of potential. I think it has impact and has utility and application right now, today. So not even the future. There's a, uh, a couple of essays I've written on, on the field and on the topic, and I, I say the future is sort of here. Right? It's not necessarily <laughs> somewhere in, in, the, in the future. And, and what I mean by that is if you, if you think about some of the application of this technology, and I think if you look at AI as a tool, just as any other tool, it's one of the ways where, in my opinion, and I, and I think in practice, it's really being used to help doctors, physicians do their jobs better. That's the way I'd like to look at it. Should you have concern for it? Absolutely. Should you have, you know, fear for it? Not necessarily. I think it's, be, you know, once you understand uh, some of its potential, some of its limitations, and some of its uh, good uh, that can uh, be applied, I think then you have a little bit more assurance that, that there, there are some good things that can be gleaned from the technology. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So if you think about uh, some of the information, you referenced Google before, right? You have all this data and this information. How do you synthesize all of that? You know, we have, uh, we have so much medical knowledge, new medical knowledge that's coming out every single day. By the time, you know, we finished this interview, there have been new publications that have come out, research done on old research, new innovation, new perspectives on things. And, you know, as a physician, as a care provider, someone that's trying to take care of an individual patient, it's, it's just physically not possible to sift through all that information. But if you have a tool that can help you with uh, the stratification and sort of the structure of that information and, and can help you synthesize it uh, so that it can give you insight into a particular question or a topic, then that, that's a good thing, I, I would argue. And that's that's one of the applications I think will, will, will uh, potentially continue to be of great benefit to us in, in healthcare. As, as far as some of the practical things where we've seen uh, the application uh, provide a great benefit, I think, and, and some and some good um, utility feels like radiology where you can use computer vision and you can use uh, the algorithms and the development of structured information that has, has, has been used to train models to detect abnormalities in imaging. So CT scans and things like that, where, you know, the human eye can't detect something, but down to the pixel level, a computer can, you know, and can say and give alert to someone that's that's reading the film to say, hey, this might be an abnormality here, pay a little bit of attention. And that could potentially translate into an earlier diagnosis of an abnormality for an individual that just had a diagnostic test. And I view that as a good thing. That's potentially something that now helps provide a patient with an early warning, uh, an awareness for their care team to now say, hey, there may be something here. And if that is, in fact, a, a, a disease or recurrence or what have you, now the patient can get the care that they need a bit earlier and, and not wait until it's a bit more advanced and then maybe untreatable. So there are so many different advances. And let me just, just give a little anecdote of why I think this time is critical for us in terms of maybe some of the anxiety, some of the apprehension. It's that things yes. are moving a lot more 
rapidly. Things are accelerating at a rapid pace. And I think that gives people some angst and gives people, understandably, some concern. But all of our technologies have been introduced in healthcare because healthcare is such a conservative kind of uh, of discipline, rightfully so, because lives are at stake. We don't introduce new medicines just willy-nilly. We test it, we, we evaluate, we do kinds of uh, lots of studies on these things, even procedures for that matter. When technologies are introduced, they often take a long time to get adopted. And I, and I think in AI's case, it's going to happen a little bit faster, but that's just the consequence of just the way the world is moving. But for example, the stethoscope, you know, this thing that's so symbolic of, 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 of healthcare, right? You see a stethoscope, everyone knows what it does. Everyone appreciates it. They almost feel like they've been cheated if they don't have the doctor take the stethoscope out and listen. You know, when Linnaeus, introduced this Marvel technology, no one really paid attention to it. They were like, ah, this thing is, <laughs> is, is not worth uh, <laughs> anything uh, of significance. I mean, it took wow. decades before people adopted using it. You just think about that. Now we take it for granted. We're like, of course you use the stethoscope. Same thing with antisepsis. When, uh, when the, the surgeon Lister talked about washing your hands, can you think about right. it? Washing your hands, like something that seems so basic. Of course, it's such, it's such common sense. You know, that that whole paradigm shifted and that took many years, took decades before people adopted a practice of washing their hands. People thought it was it was it was hearsay. So I think in time we have uh, the ability to adopt technology once we validate its utility. And because we have a situation right now with a technology that's not very well understood. I think there's going to be a lot more anxiety around it. But I believe that we have uh, the at least the processes in place right now to sort of keep uh, the, the health and safety of the patient sort of at the forefront. At least I'd like to think so. Tell us a little bit about the art of human care. You've authored a lot of articles, books. Can you share with us about that and how you came up with that title and how important it is? That's that's my passion, sure, absolutely. So the art of human care is, is has been sort of my life work manifesto on much of what we talked about in the very beginning. My near death experience, this this um, philosophy that I developed not only as a patient but as a physician taking care of patients. So I had the this experience as a patient that almost died, and now I'm a physician that takes care of patients when they're, you know, most vulnerable and, and at their, and at their, um, you know, some, sometimes at their, at their worst. And I had the uh, distinct honor and, and pleasure to have an invitation, a kind invitation extended to me at my medical school alma mater to give the white coat ceremony keynote speech uh, many years ago. And this is a great honor. I mean, most people that get invited to the white coat ceremony. So white coat ceremonies are, is a tradition in many medical schools now where as you come into the profession as a first year medical student, you get your white coat, you get the short white coat, you get to put it on. It's sort of like the community welcome you in, into the great profession of healthcare, into your practice, into this, this noble profession. And uh, at the ceremony, not only do you get the coat, but you usually get words of inspiration and encouragement from some physician. That, that has a perspective that may be of value to you. And so to get invited to inspire these, uh, these students and the next generation of health professionals was, was a great honor. And I really thought a lot about what it is that I could tell uh, these students or, you know, the next generation that would inspire them, especially at a time when, you know, healthcare is very challenging. And this is before the pandemic. So and now even even more so, when you think about all the burnout and the things that have, have, 
have been, you know, plaguing people in the health professions recently. But it's a tough, it's tough work to get uh, through medical school to to devote your time and, and study and sacrifice so much all these years for arguably not a lot of compensation, and 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 to do so and to do it, you know, in a way that uh, is really uh, requires a lot of devotion and dedication. It, it really takes a special person to kind of go into it. And so I kind of thought about all these things and I try to, in a very clear and a concise and a compelling message, share with the students uh, inspiration and give them what I believed were some pearls of wisdom learned along the way. And so I kind of encapsulated into a message called the art of human care. And it consists of three principles. And those three principles were purpose, personalization and partnership. And they are those three principles that I learned, you know, as a patient and as I've learned in my years of practice, but also in my years of just engagement with uh, patients and students and individuals outside of medicine, uh, that everyone wants a purpose, everyone needs a purpose, everyone that has a purpose has a reason to live. I experienced that when I was on my deathbed, and I've experienced that when I've taken care of patients. Patients can come to me and they have a illness and they have uh, a condition or they have a problem, uh, and if they have a purpose and they have a desire to live, it's almost you know insurmountable what they can they they can almost get through anything insurmountable to get to that purpose whether it's to see their grandkids graduate from school or to you know go on a cruise or whatever it is you can see they 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 sort of rally around this purpose that they have uh, to spend time with loved ones and i and i really believe that that's an important thing so i try critically to ask questions of patients to try and discover what their purpose is and help them focus on that because I think that helps a lot and goes a long way in their journey. And personalization is very important too because I've had patients that there is no cookie cutter generic way of taking care of all patients. All patients with heart disease, you know, are not going to all benefit from, you know, one way of treatment. Vice versa, you know, people are not all going to need the same operation or, or do well with the same operation. So personalization is very important in healthcare because every person is a unique individual. They have unique circumstances. They have unique social constructs. They have unique beliefs. They have unique composition, you know, that requires a specific treatment that's personalized to their specific body habitus, type, background, everything, genetic profile. So personalization is another one of these very important things to me. And when I think about that doctor, that kind doctor that came up to share with me this this test of, of, of his patient that wanted to be a doctor, how much more personal could you get than that? And look at the entire look at the look at the difference that it made in my life, right? I, I'm here to share this this great story with you so many decades later. And partnerships are very important as well. And and uh, throughout telling the students about these three principles, of course I gave them examples that were sort of relevant and, and what I thought appropriate to, to their level and, and and ones that would resonate with them in terms of story. Partnership Partnerships are absolutely important. Right. Uh, from the very beginning, I've been talking about partnerships. If it wasn't for my frat brothers bringing me in 
that partnership of, of, of that fraternal brotherhood and concern, you know, I would have been probably left to die in the, in the dorm room. So that was important. It was the partnership in the hospital, like all these people sort of coming together, coalescing and figuring out, hey, you know, maybe this isn't just the typical Friday night, you know, kid is something more serious. And the partnership to get me through rehab and get me out of the hospital, all those people that I, that I could think of that, that were helping along the way. Our partnership that we're having right now, we're having this fellowship, we're having this conversation. Hopefully, it'll touch someone, inspire someone, give someone some information and some insight into something that they have been struggling with or something that they want to learn more about and inspire them to, to, to do some great things. Maybe really discover, realize, and, and maybe repurpose their own purpose or find their purpose. So partnerships are really important. And if you think about healthcare in general, and I talked about you know my military experience and, and combat and and all of these other um, you know technologies that we've advanced, all of those were the result of partnership. People working together, all these great things that have happened have been the result of people coming together around a mission, around a goal, and, and sort of rallying together to make something come out of nothing and innovation. So those are the three principles that I tried to impart to them. And I, and I encapsulated in this theory, this philosophy of the art of human care. And I said to them, if they were able to apply in their practice, purpose, personalization, and partnerships, uh, they will go a long way to being very good doctors and excellent physicians and contribute greatly to human, humankind and, and to the world. So that was the message. That's the art of human care in a nutshell. Purpose, personalization and partnership. And you know what? Those three principles, it seems like you could you can kind of apply that to so many different aspects in your life, even if you're not, you know, practicing medicine, whatever it is that you decide your purpose in life is, you can apply those principles. Dr. Teta, I could talk to you all day long. I know you are busy <laughs> and I know you've got a lot going on, but I, you know, I have so enjoyed this conversation. I really have. I'm inspired by you. I appreciate you sharing your, your story and how your journey has taken you to where you are now. And um, I just really appreciate you and everything that you've done in your life. Thank you for your service. Thank you so much for making the time to accommodate me here on the Olivia Fox podcast. Oh, and thank you for the gracious invitation and for the flexibility to come back. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Maybe we'll talk again on another show during, you know, maybe, you know, heart donations or talking about heart disease. There's so many things that I wanted to touch upon tonight, but I know you, you've got a uh, limited time. So we'll have to have you back to talk about more things. Okay. I appreciate it. Well, that's going to do it for the Olivia Fox show. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Please tell a friend to tell a friend, the Olivia Fox podcast, wherever you get your podcast, find me. We'll talk to you again soon. The Olivia Fox Podcast is produced and hosted by Olivia Fox. Executive producer Ken Johnson. Get the Olivia Fox Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, comment, and rate. Follow Olivia Fox on IG at Olivia Fox Radio. Follow the Mean Old Line Media Podcast Network at Mean Old Line Media. Get the Mean Old Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The Olivia Fox Podcast is a Mean Old Line Media production. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. 